ears to hear what you have to say through Stephen. Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, church. How are you today? Excellent. Excellent. About six months ago, most of us did something. Now, maybe you didn't do it six months ago exactly, but at some point in your life, I would venture to guess that around six months ago this time, whether it were one year ago, 10 years ago, at some point in your life, around the month of January, specifically January 1st, you, like many, many Americans, did something. You made a New Year's resolution. Now, that's something that sweeps across America. Every single year, people make these New Year's resolution, and businesses capitalize on it. We see big sales, gym, memberships spike up. All of these things happen, and they happen in these different businesses, these different sectors, really around four things, because most people, uh, regardless of where they come from, what part of the country they live in, usually do make one of four New Year's resolutions. The first that they would make would be a self-improvement or an educational related resolution. That is to say that this would be the year that I would learn a new skill. This would be the year that I would uh, uh, make a a new, uh, for our young people, this would be the year I would actually do my homework, right? This would be the year I'm going to resolve to stay awake in class, that you would make some type of resolution like that. Maybe it would be the This would be the year that you'll go back to school and finish that degree. Still other people would make a money-related resolution to say, this is the year that we're going to begin our savings account. This is the year that I'm going to get out of debt. This is the year that I'm going to go from uh, not having a budget to having a budget, to cash only and get rid of that credit card, hop on the Dave Ramsey plan, that you would make a money-related resolution. Still others would make a relationship-related New Year's resolution. Many girls at colleges across the country would say, ring by spring, this is my year. Uh, Still others would say, you know, I'm going to go back and and mend that relationship with my father or my mother, uh, with my brother or sister, someone who I've had a broken relationship with. And yet the most popular New Year's resolution, without fail, has to do with your health. They say, this is the year that I'm going to lose that weight. I'm going to start walking every morning. I'm going to work out. I'm going to finally get rid of that freshman 15 that I added 15 or 20 years ago, that this is going to be the year that I get in shape. And for all of the money that is spent, for all of the hoopla, for all of the, the face space updates and all of those things, for all that people say, did you know that after only one week, 22% of people have failed? After just one week, seven days, all the money, all the hoopla, one in five people after just seven days have quit. When you jump that up to one month, that doubles to 40% of people have given up and failed on their New Year's resolution after only one month. At three months, 50% of people have given up on their New Year's resolution. If you were to look at the date on the calendar that we stand at today, by this point, almost six months after making a New Year's resolution, over 60% of people have given up and failed at their New Year's resolution. Now, I'm, I'm no uh, sociologist. I'm no psychologist. I graduated from Texas A&M, so I don't pretend to know a whole lot. But what I do know is this. I think I have a beat on why it is that people fail at their New Year's resolution. I believe that people fail at their New Year's resolutions after one week, one month, three months, six months. They fail because when it comes to completing your New Year's resolution, it is not about what you say but it's about what you do. When it comes to completing your New Year's resolution, what you say doesn't matter, but what you do matters. And we find this very same principle is true 
in the epistle of James. If you would, take your scriptures and turn to James chapter 2, and we'll look beginning in verse 14. And as you turn there, I want to set the stage for what's happening. James is the half-brother of Jesus, the pastor at the church in Jerusalem. And he is writing to Jewish Christians throughout the dispersion. And he writes chiefly to push forward this one idea. That believers, those who would be disciples of Jesus Christ, must commit their lives wholeheartedly to following him. That if you were to be a disciple of Jesus, that your whole life, that you must commit to him 100%. And so as a, as a kind of secondary to that, he writes in answering questions like, how do I do that? What does it look like to be a Christian? Because remember, this is a new thing for Christians then. Christianity is a new thing. They don't have 2,000 years of church history to lean upon. They're figuring it out as they go. And so James writes and addresses some of these things. James, in writing, uh, writes much less about principle and much more about practice. That James is much less concerned with right thinking and much more concerned with right doing. That for James, it's a matter of empty belief versus a lived practice. That James doesn't want his people to confuse an abstract thought about God with a faith that actually does something. For James, it is very much about practical faith and active love. For James, what we do matters. And so what we see, and it's important to understand that that James writes this way because of the people who sat in his pews, so to speak, that the folks who were going to his church, those that he were uh, ministering to, that they had come to this place where uh, they began to confuse some things, that they prided themselves in their monotheistic belief. That's to say they took pride in their belief in the one true God, that they said, I believe in the one true God. Therefore, uh, compared to these pagans, those around me who have a God for this day and a God for that day, I'm really kind of killing it. I'm kind of a spiritual rock star compared to these other guys because I look around and I see people who don't believe in my God and they believe in this fake God and that fake God and they have a God for this day and a God for that day. Compared to these guys, I'm knocking it out of the park. And therefore, but what they did didn't matter. They had this belief. They come to say, because I have a right belief, my actions do not matter. They would publicly confess Jesus and yet they would privately humiliate the poor that they would hold in high esteem the words of Jesus, and yet they had adopted the values of the world. That they thought it was just enough to believe in the right God, so it did not matter if they loved their neighbor. It did not matter who or what they valued. Uh, It did not matter their actions. If they were walking around today, they may say something like, uh, my father is is a godly man. My family is a godly family. We've been a part of this church for many, many years. Therefore, it does not matter. Fill in the blank. But they would say, it it does not matter because I I went to a Christian school and I I got all A's or I've served in this ministry or that or I've given this amount of money or that amount of money. If they were walking around today, they might say, it does not matter the jokes that I tell because I have a right belief. They might say, it it doesn't matter how I spend my money. It does not matter uh, how I drive in traffic. Uh, The things that I, I say as I'm working through rush hour traffic, that it doesn't really matter how I interact with my family or my wife or my children. It does not matter those things because I have the right belief. I've gone to church. I've given this money. I've fill in the blank. And James, I believe that 
that if he were to come in contact with us who had this thought, and for many of the people that he was writing to, he had to write and say to them that you have confused a right belief with a right practice, that you couldn't be more wrong. You've missed the mark along the way that you've made a spiritual resolution but you've not taken any spiritual action. You spiritually resolve to spiritually lose weight as you're spiritually driving to a spiritual Dunkin' Donuts. Like the things that you're saying and the things that you're doing are not meshing. And so he writes to correct this, to say, do not confuse the profession of your faith with the practice of your faith. Now, it's important to know that James doesn't do this, and certainly God doesn't inspire James to do this because either are interested in micromanaging your life. But instead, it is written such that we might come to know what it is to live into the fullness of our purpose, that we might come to know what it is to love God wholeheartedly and with a full body devotion without reservation or restriction, exemption or exception that James writes in many ways so that when uh, uh, that scripture could become alive and not just a textbook. Not just a subject that that songs that we sing wouldn't just be something that we do before some big black man yells at you for 25 minutes. That that, 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 that scripture, that songs that that when all hell breaks loose in our life. That we can find peace in the midst of chaos. That we can find wisdom when we're confused, that we can find healing in the midst of sickness, joy in the midst of pain. That we could find Intimacy with God, that we could know what it was like to be a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ, regardless of what might be happening in our worlds. And so in James, he says, what we do matters. So if you would now look in James chapter two, beginning in verse 14, the scriptures read this way. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but you do not have works? Can faith save you? Now, I, I want to pause here and, and because oftentimes people confuse James and Paul and they hear James say that faith equals this active belief in God and that works are very much required. And then they think of Paul in Galatians or they think of the letter to Ephesians and say, but wait a minute, it's by grace we've been saved, uh, not by works. Is, is there a contradiction between the scriptures? And, and I'm, I'm happy to report that there is, in fact, no contradiction that though James and Paul use the same words, They use them in a different context. You'd understand this well. Uh, From time to time, Team Impact gets the opportunity to go to military bases and encourage our our military men and women who are serving around the world. And if, after telling you that that's what we get to do, I told you that I was proud to serve those who serve our country, you would know that I what I mean is I am proud to go and encourage and do what I do to those who uh, protect our country, right? That would be the context of that term. But you could rightly say, because I use the word serve, that I am proud to be a waiter for the waiters of America because it's it's the same term. And so you begin to see that context matters. And so it is with James that for James, faith equals an active belief in God and works are the response of that faith. And James says that we should not expect salvation if our lives do not reflect, if our works do not reflect that faith. Because if we had encountered the risen Jesus, then our lives would do something about it. It would reflect it. And James chiefly is concerned in this moment, in this statement, with usefulness. He would ask the question, what is the use 
of your faith. I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, because I'm a Christian, I'm a Houston Texans fan, um, and I know that there are many pagans who uh, support the Dallas Cowboys, and that's totally okay uh, because the reality is uh, the example that I'm about to give is equally uh, unlikely. So let's just say that the Texans somehow were to make it to the Super Bowl. Again, equally unlikely that the Cowboys would make it, so it works well. Let's just say that the Texans were to make it to the Super Bowl, and I were somehow, uh, unbeknownst to my wife, to drain our savings account to buy 50-yard line tickets to the Super Bowl. And I were to get the tickets, I mean, first class, we were doing it big. And Super Bowl weekend rolls around, and let's just say we're here in Dallas, and the Super Bowl is in Indianapolis. And Saturday rolls around, and Luke sees me hanging around. He sees me at the Kroger, and he says, dude, man, what are you doing here? You, we gotta, you gotta catch a flight and go to the Super Bowl. You, you're gonna miss the game. I said, oh man, I got time. I got time. Sunday morning rolls around. Everybody's setting up donuts in the back. And I stroll. You go, Mackie, man, what are you, what are you doing, man? The Super Bowl starts in six hours. All the pregame festivities are happening. You're missing all. You're, you're gonna miss the game. Oh, dude, I got time. I got time. Super Bowl party rolls around. Five o'clock. Everybody's chipping and dipping. I walk into Luke's house at the Super Bowl party. He goes, guys, what are you, what are you doing? You have tickets and you're, you're at Luke's house watching the Super Bowl? Why would you do that? I said, ah, you know, I, I just decided I, I really like the guacamole he makes, man. I, I just, I don't want to go to the game. You would rightly ask the question, what was the use of putting your marriage on the line? What was the use of spending all that money? What was the use of buying those tickets if you didn't go to the game? And I would have to say that those tickets were useless. And it's the same idea that James is trying to make with our faith. We'll see it if we were, as we read on in verses 15, 16, and 17. If you were to read on through verses to 24 and 25, you would see that James is asking the question, what is the use of your faith if it does not spur you on to action? Let's look at a, uh, an example that was modern for James and his reader in verse 15. In verse 15, the scriptures read, If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what is the good of that? James asked the question, man, if you were to walk out of church and you see a brother sitting there, he's hungry, ain't got no clothes, and and Dr. Evans, Tony Evans helped me understand this so well. He says, you walk out and, and you see this brother, he's just dirty. Ain't taking a shower in a minute, got no clothes, he's hungry. And you walk up to this brother and you say, brother, man, you ain't never going to believe what I heard at church today. I heard that my God owns a cattle on a thousand hills. I heard that my God is so powerful that he took a couple snack packs and a Capri Sun and fed 5,000 people plus women and children. Let me tell you about my God. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to pray for you. You lay hands on that brother and you start praying. Say, dear God, thank you, Heavenly Father, for this great day. Thank you that you are so powerful that you can do anything you want, that you can't be so hungry, God, you wouldn't feed my brother. God, we thank you for what you're going to do in this brother's life. Amen. And then you walk away. James says, what was the good of that? That brother didn't need a Bible study. He needed a hamburger. He didn't need you to pray for him. He needed you to put him on the top of your camel, drive him down to Whataburger, get a triple meat, triple cheese with mustard and pickles, jalapenos, some French fries, sweet tea, and apple pie. That's what that dude needed. He didn't need a prayer. He needed something to eat. And James says, what good did your faith do? And he he would say that your faith was useless because it did not spur you on to love your neighbor. He would say that your faith was useless for this man because all it communicated to him 
was that your God, who is so big and so powerful and so great, was as useless to him as you were. See, make no mistake, friends. For many, many people, you will be the only Jesus they ever know and the only Bible they ever read. For, for many, many people, as you walk through restaurants, the way that you tip, when you go to the movies, the movies you choose to watch, when you go to work, the way that you lead your employees, the type of employee that you are, that this all proclaims a lot about the God we claim to serve. And so we must understand that what we do matters. And James would say, for this man, your faith was useless because it did not point him to God. And he'd say it was useless for you because it did not spur you to live out the greatest commandment. Jesus in chapter 12 of the gospel of Mark was asked what the greatest commandment and all of scriptures were. He responded with a prayer called the Shema, which says that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, Paul in Galatians says that the, the, the whole of the law can be summed up in this, that you love your neighbor as yourself. James in chapter two says the royal and perfect law is to love your neighbor as yourself. And so our faith, James would say, is useless because it didn't do anything for that man and it didn't do anything for you to spur you on to living out your purpose. And so when asked the question, what good did your faith do? We'd have to answer, it did no good. It was useless. You see, just like resolutions are only fulfilled when they are coupled with action, so our faith is only completed when it is coupled with action. And so James concludes in chapter 2 and verse 17 that faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. You see, for James's audience, their belief in the one true God made them think that it was okay that they were exempt from loving their neighbor that their actions in that area of their life did not matter. James had to set the record straight to say that your actions very much do matter, that what you do matters, that they could not confuse the beginning of their faith with the end of their faith, and that their faith without proper action was dead. There's a story told of a man who was a man's man, Big, big guy, probably about 300, 305 pounds, had a great beard, kind of a, a light mocha skin, uh, just a ridiculously good-looking man. Uh, man's man looked a lot like me, actually. And um, bad joke. I had to get a bad joke in because Luke wasn't up here, and y'all are used to a bad joke every week. And anyways, and so he was a man's man. He lived in the mountains of Colorado, and, and he didn't have need for the the, the modern things of the world. He built his log cabin all by himself. He, he put it together himself. And he, he would, from time to time, though, uh, go down into the village and walk through the hardware store just to kind of stroke his ego a little bit to show, you know what, I don't need all of these things that these lesser people need, these technologies. And one day he was walking through and he was looking at the different axes that were there in the hardware store. And he made note to say that you know, he, he had made his own axe and he was just proud of himself. And the hardware store owner comes up to him and says, hey there, how you doing, sir? And he said, I'm, I'm doing well. He said, is there anything I can help you find? He said, oh, no, I'm just looking at all this lesser equipment. Uh, you know, in fact, I see this axe here. I made an axe better than this. And in fact, I can cut down 10 trees in one hour with my homemade axe. It's, it's a pretty big deal. And the hardware store owner said, wow, that's that's pretty impressive. He said, but uh, let me let me ask you a question. Have you ever heard of a chainsaw? man said, a chainsaw? What, what's that? 
He said, well, if you can cut down 10 trees in an hour with a homemade act, you could cut down 30 or 40 trees in an hour with a chainsaw. The man said, impossible. The hardware store owner said, okay, here, here's the deal, man. I, I, know what, I know your thing. So let me tell you this. I'll make you a deal. How about you take this chainsaw, you take it home, and you cut down some trees. And if you can't cut down more trees with this chainsaw than you can with your homemade axe, then you bring it back. Not only will I pay you the cost of the chainsaw, but I'll also pay you for your time. But if not, if it works better than come back, you pay me when you're ready, and, uh, and we'll call it, call it square. The guy said, dude, you're throwing money away. I'll take that bet. So he takes the chainsaw. He gets back home. He opens it straight up. He's taking it out of the packaging. sees this paper at the top. It says instructions. He says, I'm a man's man. I don't need that. Throws the instructions away. I know none of you guys have, have ever done that, but he, he throws the instructions away and he gets going. He's looking through the chainsaw and he's taking it and he's working and he's going. And he's sweating. He starts cussing and an hour and a half goes by and he's cut down one half of one tree. And this dude is hot. He doesn't wait till the next day to go back to that store owner. He goes back. He storms back in that store. He throws it on the counter and says, this thing is a piece of junk. I've been working for an hour and a half and I cut down half of one tree. This thing doesn't work. Give me my money. And the guy says, wait a minute. There is no way that you've only cut down half of one tree. He said, let me see this thing. So he starts looking it over. He grabs the ripcord. He pulls it in the, in the chainsaw goes, rum, rum, and the man jumps back and says, hey, what's that sound? Now, some of y'all went to AC. Y'all didn't get it. He was taking this chainsaw and he was using it. <laughs> yeah, Terry got it. You see, this man had a belief that because he was a man's man, he was exempt from the instruction. And therefore, he was unable to let that chainsaw live into the fullness of its created purpose. Friends, my question for you in closing this morning is this. Do you have a belief in your life that because you've gone to church, because you've done this, because you've made this sacrifice, because you've given this, because you've fill in the blank, that you're somehow exempt from something that God has called you to do, that somehow you're exempt from loving your neighbor, that somehow you're exempt from giving God access to a part of your life? Have you somehow made an 80-20 agreement with God that says, God, my belief in you, my attendance to church, my family that I've grown up in affords you this area of my life. But God, you don't get to touch my finances or you don't get to touch what I drink on the weekends, or you don't get to touch how I interact at work or school or what I do on the airplane. You don't get to, you don't get to touch this. Do you have some belief that has exempted God from an area of your life? Friend, if you do, I want to encourage you this morning to confess that, to hand that back over to God, to lay down that belief, because when we have exemptions in our life, we aren't able to live into the fullness of our created purpose. That we aren't able to give God everything that is rightfully his. And we are not able to live into the fullness of what he has created us to be. I'm going to pray. Case is going to come. And then we'll, we'll close with this. Daddy, thank you so much for today. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you are worth 100% of our lives. God, I ask in the name of Jesus that if there is anything in any of our lives that we would hold back, if there's any area of exemption in our life, God, I ask that you would reveal that to us. I ask that any belief that we have would be 
um, that would lead us to exemption, that you would squash that, that we might be able to live into the fullness of our created purpose, that we would be able to give to you a wholehearted, full-bodied devotion without reservation or restriction, exemption or exception, that you would have our all, that we would trust in no other thing, that we would hold nothing back, that would give it all to you. God, we love you. Thank you for today. Thank you for being a God who is concerned with where we are and where we are going. In the name of Jesus, we pray.